the assembly instructions. We see here that as the congregation of Israel is being prepared, there are some instructions that the people must follow to be in the will of God, to be following in obedience to God because he knows what's best. Many times we may not fully understand why God says what he says and why he's instructing us and directing us and closing doors in our lives and opening other doors in our lives. And we don't always know. And so many times we struggle not knowing or fully understanding. But God has instructed us that he gives us what we know for this life. And that we will know more deeper as we go deeper into the relationship and desire to be in deeper. The Holy Spirit that lives within you will illuminate more clearly the truths of God and what he needs you to understand for that time of your season of your life. And so we need to just by faith trust by walking by faith and not always looking by sight and trying to have to know everything. You know, I have to have it all planned out. It's got to be on my plan that I want and you just have to follow my rules, God. But we'll see here tonight that he had very very specific instructions for the assembly. uh, And we'll find those here that may challenge you in why and understanding the question, why is that to to be? And hopefully as it brings clarity as the spirit leads. It says here in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we see he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So a light topic right up front. Uh, So men, if you were emasculated by crushing or mutilation or in something of becoming a eunuch uh, and... uh, then you could not assemble here uh, and right up front as one of the first things about the congregation of Israel as they gathered together. Why? Why would that be? I, it was a mistake. It was a problem. It was a work, you know, work error issue. I was working and I got hurt. No, no. This is more specifically, I believe, as we look at this, that by crushing or mutilation, it refers to this emasculation by either a birth defect, accident, or I believe deliberate emasculation, meaning they deliberately wanted to be a eunuch. And because they were, they were people who were, there was a pagan worshiping by doing this. And that's where I lean toward when I read this. Why? Because it says, shall not enter the assembly of God. And when we read this term, we usually refers to a national gathering before the Lord. Not an individual gathering with the Lord, but a national gathering of the Lord in worship. And such as when they're gathered at the Mount Sinai, we see in Deuteronomy 5 and 9 and 10 and 8, it's a bunch of places in Deuteronomy, but it doesn't always have this sense when we take a look at this, because in Deuteronomy 31 30, it refers to all the congregation of Israel, while in Deuteronomy 31 28, it makes it clear that it was all the congregation was gathered through all the elders or of, your, of the tribes or the officers. So in the context, what they're referring to is that the congregation can refer to either elders and officers, and it may very well be that these exclusions for the assembly of the Lord are excluding anything and during the religious life of Israel or political life of the nation could not have these eunuchs be part of that part of the assembly. Some suggest that the idea of the assembly of the Lord is the only the leadership or the rulers of Israel. These people were barred from not from the religious life of Israel, but from the political life of the nation. 
Interesting, in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, shows that even eunuchs and foreigners could be accepted before the Lord if they would obey him. And they would be accepted before the normal people, the rest of the congregation, if, if they um, disobeyed, they were not. If they obeyed, they were part of the, the rest of them. So as we look at the scripture as a whole, the context, it wasn't like because you were a eunuch and you were cut off, as they say. Uh, it didn't mean you were cut off from the assembly of worshiping God and gathering there. Maybe a leadership role. Maybe there was a, a when there was coming together for worship and, and a thing, because you were worshiping a pagan style and the reason why you were uh, in that state, that uh, God was putting a restriction uh, on them so that none of that pagan worship would be creeping into the church. In verse 2, we also see that um, one of the illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So we see now the unknown parentage, uh, your illegitimate birth. You don't know who the, 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 the parents are. Um, and it was part of that um, assembly of Israel or the civil leadership of Israel. So it's difficult to define exactly what this means by the term of illegitimate birth. But some Jewish writers later define that as any someone who was born of an insensuous relationship between the Jews and the pagan uh, cultures, those were those mixed marriages, those between the Israelites and pagan neighbors, as we saw in ne uh, Nehemiah 13:23, they were not allowed to be part of the congregation. Again, God knows what's best and how what happens is when you're bringing this foreign uh, pagan worship kind of stuff and blending and you have these marriages and you're blending and they're not equally yoked as we would say in today's world and you're bringing in this, this sense, it can contaminate, it can cause problems and uh, like a cancer into the congregation and God wanted to make sure we protect people as they gather together in his name to worship. We also see in Deuteronomy 23 here, verses 3 through 6, that the Ammonites and the Moabites uh, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now it's interesting, the previous verses said to the tenth generation. We see these were also the tenth generation. Why? Because over time, that this this lifestyle, this pagan worship and stuff would fade away over multiple generations and not be as, as risk uh, intensive of being bringing that pagan lifestyle into the nation of Israel as they come to worship. And same with the uh, Am uh, Amorites and the Moabites. It's to the tenth uh, to generation the descendants were not able to assemble of the Lord uh, because they did not meet with you, the nation of Israel, with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from uh, Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So we see here now two groups that you could not, uh, the uh, ten generations, they were not allowed to be into the assembly of the Lord. The Moabites and the Amorites not only treated Israel cruelly, 
as they were coming out of Egypt, they needed food and water and they would not give it to them. God did not let that just pass. <laughs> God provided, but God noticed that you were cruel to my people. That doesn't pass anything. I see all things. I'm, I'm all omniscient. I'm all present. I see everything. So when you treat my people, it doesn't go unnoticed here. And sure enough, as their way into the promised land, but they also were a people with a disgraceful beginning, if you remember. The Moab and Ammon were the two sons born to the daughters of Lot in their incest with their father. Remember, their daughters slept with the father. We saw that in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. And those two boys that came from that, that those tribes, God said, ten, ten generations before you can even think about coming into the assemblies of the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, we see another groups here, the Ammonites, or Edomites, and the Egyptians here. And you'll notice here it says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So not ten generations, but three generations. Why? Because we know that the Edomites were ethnically related to Israel because that was Esau, the brother Esau's lineage of the Edomites. That's where that comes from. And therefore, Israel was commanded to not go against them, but there were still some, some challenges there. And so God said, you know, let's just let go three generations here and let's see how they are going to be able to then reassemble with us. But it's interesting that one of the most famous Edomites in history was abhorred by Israel. Do you know who that is? Herod the Great. Herod the Great was that great uh, Edomite that we all know, but was abhorred by Israel. Many of his building projects in Judea were intended to not only glorify his own name, but to win the favor of the Jews who despised him as an Edomite. So there's a lot more there you can go back and read and, and uh, digest a little bit. But not only of the Edomites, but also the Egyptians. Remember, they were in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. And they were neighbors. They were part. They worked together. Yes, it turned really bad at the end, and God had to bring them out of there. But the Egyptians were also to receive more favor than the Moabites or the Amorites because Israel was a guest within Egypt here. And though the years of Israel spent in Egypt were hard at the very end especially, God had a great purpose for them. God used them for a great purpose to protect his people there in Egypt and then bring them out. So Egypt was like a mother's womb for Israel uh, during those 400 years to protect them. And they wanted, a, a, you know, as the, the family grew and Israel grew, they become a threat. Obviously, that's when God brought them out. Now, in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 23, we see a miscellaneous of, of laws here, when, especially when it comes to cleanliness within the camp, because they had to keep camp. There was a lot of people there camping out here. It says, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every, from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean for some occurrence in the night, that is an interesting little phrase there, then he shall go outside the camp and he shall not come inside the camp, but it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an uh, an 
implement among your equipment. When you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuge. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So there's two things here. God commanded a ceremonial cleanliness among the army of Israel. So there, there's an army camp. They're all out there. We're going to war. There was rules for these guys going to, to war. And there was two things that needed to happen. And the, all these men gathered together. And that is to keep the camp clean and not to defile. So some occurrence in the night, it refers to, probably refers to the nighttime emissions and the cleansing of ceremony for these described in Leviticus 15, verses 16 and 18. I recommend you go back and read that specifically, what that is referring to. After observing the ceremonial washing, he may come into the camp again. So if there's an emission of semen, it comes from that man. He cannot do that within the camp. There was a designated place outside of the camp for that to take place. And then he needed to clean up and wait for before coming back in to the camp around the rest of the men. And you shall also implement and have an implement, a shovel or some kind of a thing. So when you had to go and uh, go to excretion because, you know, coffee in, coffee out moment and, uh, and others, uh, uh, you had to be able to dig a hole properly to, to dig it and bury it and cover it so it wouldn't be a smelly mess. And anyone who's been in the army and have been out in the field and have no latrines and have no running water, and you understand when you're around with hundreds and thousands of guys, everyone in the army and the military knows what this is all about and keeping clean within the camp. We also see here in verses 15 and 16, Israel to provide an asylum, uh, asylum for this foreign escaped slave here. It says, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. So the refugee Slave referred to and had evidently come from foreign lands, come into their area. They see who this person is and they were to be legal, you know, you know, legal complications of how they were to deal with these foreign people coming in and now become workers for the people in the Jewish uh, community. And since as they refer to as slaves, they were had valued possessions and they were legal complications. And what they, God says, you can't turn them around and send them back to the, their master and then back into the other land. You needed to make sure uh, you uh, choose to have them in the right place and, uh, and work them. We also see in verse 17 and 18, we see dealing with there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So here we see, we're seeing a series about 14 things here, various things. The first one was around the uh, dealing with foreign escaped slaves, workers who are now coming into the land. 
that's the first one, verse 15 and 16. The second thing of, of this various uh, uh, instructions is how to deal with prostitution, both a female prostitution and a male prostitution. And so the female prostitution is referred to as a harlot. A male prostitution is referred to as a perverted one or a dog. That is the term used for someone who is a male prostitute. So what had to happen is these female prostitutes, this term, uh, even the perverted ones, as, as, as they come together, they were from these pagan religions, the Canaanites, all those who were surrounding the nation of Israel. And we see that God says, no, 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 you just can't allow the people just like this to come in and infiltrate into the congregation. And, and there's, some, there's some rules and some uh, instructions on how to deal with it. We see in the later in the reigns of Asa in 1 Kings 15, 12 and Joshua, uh, Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 7, we're told that the, the perverted persons, those male prostitutes, were expelled from uh, Israel because they were causing such problems within the nation of Israel. And this means that for some period of time before they were expelled, they were allowed to practice this holy prostitution that they were doing in the name of their God. And that was what a lot of the uh, priestess, they were sex slaves coming from the, these pagan worships, and they were trying to come in and infiltrate within the nation of Israel. And it, but God made it very clear here. No, no, you can't intermix with this. This is not good, not right. It's an abomination to the uh, Lord your God. It's against his nature of prostitution and, uh, for male and female. Uh, so this, it was a reminder, uh, a principle that worked uh, of the guy that does not heed um, anything immoral or anything you're trying to gain through things. And, and it's, it's interesting how you would think that's not happening in the world today. But many times we see that this same harlotry and prostitution and stuff to gain and make money and it, it infiltrates in every walk of, uh, of society, uh, and it's an abomination to the Lord your God. So we also see in verses 19 and 20 that we see the third item of interest that needed instruction, and that's regarding around lending to someone and how you charge them for lending. It says, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So one of the rules, instructions for the assembly is that if someone's in need, they need to have something to, to live then if it's a brother it's a part of the assembly it's, it's part of the nation you are to then lend them but you're not to charge them interest you're not to try to make money off of this you're just lending and then you will be able to get paid back potentially or if it's a foreigner you can charge interest because it's not part of the family the mention of food and the similar command that we see back in Exodus 22:25 leads most to understand that interest was prohibited on loans made to the poor for their basic needs. You should never be taking advantage of someone, especially if they're poor and they're in need to meet their basic needs. If to take any try to take any advantage of them, you're really going against the nature and the, the mindset of God. You should not be doing that at all. And, uh, and you shouldn't be prohibiting to taking, you know, 
the willingness and the, the gladness. Why? Because God said, the Lord your God may bless you if you do see it the way God sees it and helps that person who's poor and gives to that person and lending and uh, doing it God's way because uh, God will bless you from that, by doing that. Verses 21 and 23, we see the importance of now the fourth thing, keeping our vows. It says right here, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips... You shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vow to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So a vow before God is no small thing. God, I take a vow right now, I promise, you know. It's be very, you know, be very careful what you're taking a vow to do. Because God expressly commanded that Israel should be careful to keep its vows and to fulfill every oath made. When you make an oath, God holds you to that. And so the, your Lord God will surely require it of you, it says here in the scripture right here. If it don't, it will be sin. You don't do it. God sees it and he's saying you're going to do it. It's sin. You're going against God. And he says, be very careful when you make vows uh, that you have no intention or interest of fulfilling in many circles today, the breaking of an oath is just some standard business practice. But before God, it is simply sin. You made an oath. You made a promise, a business practice promise, and you're not even in intention to be fulfilling it, or you do it. That is sin. Now, if you abstain from vowing, many wonder if vows or oaths are permitted for Christian even today. Well, of course, we see it in Scripture. Let me give it to you. Some think because that Jesus said, um, said in Matthew 5, 34 through 37, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, footstool nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But, your, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So we see that in James chapter 5, verse 12. And we read that on Sundays when we were in James. That how important that we understand what we make. We say yes, it should be a yes. And you have every intention to do it. And when your no is no, it's clarity. Maybes means no's, but you are vague. It's not a good thing to say. Maybes, I'll see. Perhaps, I don't know. Yes or no. Or at least say, I don't know right now. Let me evaluate and I will let you know if it's a yes or no. At least you're clear and not being vague or passive aggressive and all these other things people have a tendency to do if they're not willing to speak truth and love. But in the context of the rest of the scripture, we see that Jesus was not abiding or forbidding oaths as much as telling us that we should be so filled with integrity in our words that an oath is unnecessary. Oh, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. No, no. Let your yes be your yes and your no, no. So that you're not having to make these, these try to convince someone with these oaths and vows just to get someone to convince someone. Let your integrity and your character be solid. 
So when then when someone says, I, yes, I'll be there, you know they're going to be there. You just know. You don't even question it. You can, you can really, you can rely upon that. Jesus answered under oath in, in the courts, if you remember, so you can make an oath. Why? We see that in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. God himself swears an oath. We see that in Luke 1, 73. Acts 2, 30. And Hebrews, a couple of places in 3, 18, 6, 13, and 17. So we know that God makes Oath. We see Jesus himself makes an oath. It's not a problem making an oath. It's just make sure that you follow through. Because vows are never required by God. Vows are not required by God. But many times it's better not to make a vow. So this shows how important it is to keep a vow once made. When he says, which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. Once it leaves your lips, you be quick, don't be quick to speak. You should be slow to speak. So that you don't say something quickly coming out of your lips. And then you wish you'd never said a promise of an oath to do something. Ecclesiastes 5. Verses 4 and 5. I love this verse. When you make an oath to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, and it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. <laughs> you better not make a vow and say, I'll pay you back. I promise. I promise. And you know you're not going to do it. You're, that's, that's, that's not good at all. You're better off not vowing at all. Why? Because... We see is in the verse, many vows are just plain foolish. What's the most foolish thing you've ever said in your life probably is, I'll never do that again. <laughs> it's probably one of the most common thread of all men and women. I'll never do that again. Especially when you're in your youth. It's foolish and unwise to demand such a vow from someone anyway. You shouldn't make someone make a vow. If you're going to make a vow, you should make a vow to praise God. To praise God. Vows made to you are binding upon you, O God. I will render praises unto you. Psalm 56, 12. How about Psalm 61, 8? So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Those are good vows. In verses 24 and 25 here, chapter 23, we see the fifth instruction to the assembly, and it's around eating neighbors' fields. <laughs> it's not getting into the refrigerator, but it's kind of the same thing. So, or the garden, I should say, getting into people's gardens today. But look at what happens here. It says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads, of, heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. And so we see here that God says people are traveling. They don't have a McDonald's in every corner. They don't have all these other fast food places that you, I feel hungry. You feel hungry? I don't have time to eat. Let's go to Taco Bell. You know, let's go to 
Moe's. I'm trying to think of all these kind of fast food places that, you know. Chick-fil-A. Yes, Chick-fil-A. Now, that's a better, that's probably a better, a good one. But anyway, so we sit there. They were able to go past a someone's vineyard or past a grain place and be able to at least grab a little quick bite. But they could come with their baskets and their everything and pull up the, the pull up the, 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 the trailer and start sickling and cutting all the you know the man's uh, grain down and plucking all the vines and loading it up because I go, oh, you guys did a great job. Thank you. Each year I come by and I fill my vats and everything with all yours. No, it was just for something a quick eat to keep them so they're not hungry. Because again, when they're traveling, they didn't have anything. They needed to have that ability to do that. Now, in chapter 24, we see interesting in a, in, in a, around the, uh, the law of divorce and other various laws here. Um, it says right here in Deuteronomy 24.1, this is the law of divorce. This is the sixth thing, a sixth instruction to the assembly. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. The certificate of divorce. So according to the laws, it appears here that divorce was allowed in Israel but carefully regulated because God doesn't like divorce. See, under God's law, the marriage contract cannot be simply dissolved because the man or the woman feels like it. It means it has there's some boundaries here. And the marriage contract cannot simply be resolved as soon as someone's partner wants out. There must be a cause for this certificate of divorce. So even with cause, divorce was never to be seen as a preferred or easy option. I'll just pull the cord when things get tough. That is not how it works. God never designed it that way. The Hebrew word translated for divorce has its root idea of cutting apart. You're literally making a decision to cut off and to that's it. And it's an, uh, it's an amputation of the flesh. And when it's one flesh and you have an amputation off of one flesh, it's going to hurt. And God says it's going to hurt really bad when you have an amputation. But here we see that he writes her a certificate of divorce. Why? Because God commands here that any divorce be sealed with a certificate of divorce. In other words, it, it was enough for a man just to declare I'm divorcing you. Take you and your pans and get out of the house. It, that's not how it can happen. It's not that easy. It's not the way it was designed. God says there had to be a very specific reason. And divorce had to be recognized legally as a marriage. And it had to be legally have a certificate of divorce. You just can say, oh, you and I are soulmates. We're getting married. We don't need any legal. That's all just the world and the flesh. And we're just going to get together and we'll live together. Because God knows we're one. No, there's a legal process of marriage. The rules of the, the laws of the land. God recognize that. But that's the same thing as from a divorce. You just can't just say, I'm done with you. You've got to leave. You've got to have a formal legal document for that. And put that in her hand. You can't just say it and get out. There has to be something that sends her out. Something in her hand, which would be that certificate. Now, she finds no favor in his eyes. because Why? Because he finds out that she is doing something unclean. 
The grounds of divorce indicates a certificate of divorce could not be written for just any reason. It had to be founded on these two important clauses. There has to be some uncleanliness in her. And the rabbis, when you read the writings, you see the rabbis define uncleanliness as anything in the wife which might displease the husband at the time, uh, at that time, but at the time of Jesus, some rabbis taught that if a wife just burned her husband's breakfast, he could divorce her. That is not God's intent. That is not God's way. That might be man's way, but that wasn't God's way. But Jesus carefully, properly defined what uncleanliness was, is it that we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. He says, he said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Matthew 19, 9. Jesus rightly understood what uncleanliness meant and referred to which was sexual immorality a broad term referring to sexual sin which includes but not restricted to just only sexual intercourse with someone who is not your spouse so the Hebrew word translated of uncleanliness here, that's very important, it applies the meaning of sexual immorality or meaning nakedness of so if a husband finds some uncleanliness in her, she had been sexually immoral and being unfaithful in that way with someone else in that regards, that he had the right to give her this certificate of divorce. But it is not an obligation to do so. It's not saying that he has to. He just has the opportunity now to do that if he chooses because of that. And it must be that the husband is so troubled by his wife's sexual immorality that he simply cannot look upon her any longer in favor in his eyes anymore. He cannot shake off what she has done with another person or sexual immorality. That helps understand what Jesus said in Matthew 19.8. Why? Because he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. See, if a woman did not have a hard heart, she would never commit sexual immorality against her husband. And there would be no need for divorce. If a husband did not have any hardness in his heart toward her and what she did, he could forgive her and still look upon his wife with favor in his, in his eyes, even though she was guilty of sexual immorality, because he could forgive. Because he could look again upon her with eyes of love and to be able to cherish and to protect and to provide and to do what a husband would do for a husband to a wife, he would not be divorcing. But there are some times where his heart could be gotten so hard and so unforgiving and so unwilling to change and forgive her, even though she's changed, even though she's repented, even though she's no longer going down that path, and he just can't forgive her, then 
he would give that certificate of divorce. God would permit the ability for him to divorce. Matthew eleven twenty six. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And any time there is a, a situation in a marriage that's like this, it's always to see if both hearts have changed. If both hearts are can, you know, look upon each other once again, and as healing happens, come back together, husband and one, a oneness, and allow not the sin to no longer be the dominant separation, but to allow understanding that God has forgiven for the repentant heart, the believer has been forgiven, and God is asking us to also to forgive as the Father has forgiven, to allow the healing to take place. But biblically, if some has biblical grounds of divorce, which according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, includes abandonment by any unbelieving spouse. That's the only other possibility of giving a certificate of divorce. If an unbelieving spouse takes off and abandons you, you, are, you have the ability to divorce uh, your spouse. Now, it's interesting, most people think only the man, Israel, in the Israel time, only the man can actually divorce the wife, but that's not true. We also see in Mark 10, 12, if, any, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, clearly this indicates that she could divorce the husband as well under certain circumstances if he was unfaithful as well sexually. Now, in verses 2 through 4, we see the law of, of remarriage. So if someone has gone left, and now what happens if they remarried? What, what is the boundaries? What's the instructions? It says, when she has departed from, her, from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, but, it, but puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband, that second husband, dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not, keep the word, must not take her back to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination, that's very strong, abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." So this is a very strong law, the instruction that the Lord is telling him. If the divorced uh, woman marries again and that person, that husband dies, she could not go back to the first husband and remarry. No, 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 can't happen. And it was a boundary and also protection in many ways because if she left this guy, went and married another guy and find out this guy's even worse. I should have never married this guy. I shouldn't have never. I had a good thing. I should go... That would be a safety for the second guy so that she wouldn't be tempted to go back to the first guy that she married the first time. So God was very wise in understanding the nature of people and how things can work out and people can emotionally make a decision in which they never did and try to go back and do that. He says that's an abomination to the Lord. You've already been defiled by another person. You've already slept with another person. You cannot go back. 
We see here in verse 5 of 24, uh, the seventh item here of instruction, it's all around a new marriage. It says, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free after at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So God says he understands the needs here because in those days when you got married and you go out to war, it was highly likely you might not make it back. So that first year, the instruction was you man stay home and you do house with your new wife because in that year you should probably, you need to generate an offspring so you can carry on your name because if you go to war after that first year, you may not make it back and she has siblings, she's not barren, she has a child and be able to have your name continue so it's important that they do it also notice here not only you don't go to a war for a year but also you have with you know charge with any business it means that it's important that every husband even as before the Lord we find our lives you know, get really busy, and, and it's all about what you're wanting to do, and it's all about you, young man, and all about you, young lady, and it's, and now God says, you know, it's, it's together, it's a one, it's ourness there, and so Matthew 10, 39 talks about we're to lose our lives, to gain our lives, now we're getting married, you're, as a husband, you have to make sure you bring happiness to your wife and you make sure a you're having a child you're and you're helping to to become a oneness in in the same household and learning each other and and understanding these roles and responsibilities as a, as a role of the husband in Ephesians 5 describes we see that God emphasizes the essential oneness between a husband and a wife that the husband will learn you uh, learn you will reap what you sow in the marriage good or bad you have to learn these things in that first year of marriage and we always we all know this a happy wife is the foundation for a happy home we know this very quickly you'll learn that if not in the first year of your marriage and because it's not good when a wife is bitter or contentious and butting heads with you and always grappling with you and, and trying to for you know it, they have to work these things out because as we see in the proverbs a continual dripping of a very like a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike we see that in proverbs 27 15. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman, Proverbs 21.9. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman, Proverbs 21.19. Why? Men, we must learn your wives and you must learn how and by the power of the Holy Spirit to help you because it's a completely different life for you once you become married. A woman is a woman. A man is a man. Different, not, nothing, not wrong, just different. And we have to learn, both sides have to learn how to dwell together in a bliss happiness of life. Enough of that, let's go on to verse 6. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's life in pledge. Uh, one's living in pledge. So this is the eighth item, pledges. That no man shall take anything that is of importance for a pledge to pay back. So sometimes they say, okay, I'll give you this, but what do you pledge in response of a value? God says, you have, can get a pledge, but it cannot be something that the man uses 
to make a living. So in this case, a upper and lower millstone that made and grind and, and, and produced food for him, you could not use that as a pledge. Those were very valuable things. You couldn't, you couldn't use that as a pledge. It had to be something of lesser value that is not needed for his livelihood. And God put restraints because people sometimes will take advantage of you. You're so desperate and you're hungry and you're feeding your family. And so give me your car. I'll take your car as a pledge. Well, you need your car for to go to jobs and get to work and to be able to go do things. No, you can't. That, that's not allowed. It, it wasn't what the man... God says you're not allowed to take something of that much value. God had to put a restriction on it. Or people will be so desperate to feed their families, they will give up anything. And God said, no, no, I'll put some boundaries on this so people can't take advantage of those who are poor and are, need something collateral and guarantee. Had to be a payment or a loan for this but it had to be something of, uh, of lesser value than of your livelihood. Verse 7, we see the, the ninth uh, instruction to the assembly called kidnapping. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from you. I mean, it makes it clear. You kidnap anyone, that's death. That will hinder someone thinking about kidnapping, don't you think? Why? Because they're not kidnapping for a, any good reason. It's only to, to abuse and to advantage and to, to do evil against this person, against their will. That is, never is to happen. And God said, I'm going to make sure everyone clear. It's your, it's your life if you do it. Verse 8 and 9, we see the 10th one. What happens when you have skin diseases like leprosy? Look what happens here. Take heed in an outbreak of COVID that you carefully observe. No, I'm kidding. I was kidding. See if you're still tracking with me tonight. Um, an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests and the Levites shall teach you just as I commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. Now, it's interesting, the blend of the skin disease and in, content, in conjunction with a rebellious woman named Miriam. If you remember, in Leviticus 13 and 14, describes the great deal of, of quarantine that needs to happen when someone has leprosy because leprosy was a dreaded disease and no one wanted to be rotting flesh. But he says in conjunction in Numbers 12 about Miriam who led Aaron, the sister and brother duo, against their brother Moses. And God struck her with leprosy of setting up a coup against her brother Moses. Don't mess with God's, God's leader. <laughs> uh, sister found out really quick. It doesn't matter if you're the sister of Moses and you're in some authority, a position of some providence, you're not going to be uh, protected from God's judgment on you. In this case, she was be just like anyone else. You, she got leprosy and, uh, and needed to be quarantined and set aside for seven days outside the camp. We see that in Numbers 12, 14. She was treated like everybody else. Verses 10 and 13, we see the 11th instruction here around a pledge, collecting of a pledge, and how you get your pledge back, your guarantee back of what you gave a loan to them. It says, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get this, his pledge. 
right up front. You, okay, you need something, money to help you? Okay, I'll give you this, I'll help you there, but what are you going to pledge? Oh, okay, some rakes and a few of this and that. Okay, your garment, your outer garment, whatever it may be. You can't go into the man's house and collect it. Excuse me. You can't collect it that way. You, you, you can't do that. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you sh- lead shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down. That he may sleep in his garment and bless you and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So some many times would give their outer garment. And that was their pledge because they didn't have a closet full of garments. They only had one set of garments. And that outer garment was their blanket at night to stay warm. So they would pledge it just to be able to get money, to be able to get food. And at nighttime, God says, you're going to show mercy. You're going to show love to your brother. And you're going to go bring that coat back to them so they could have it at nighttime. Uh, for them, they should not suffer uh, without that outer garment. 14 and 15, we see uh, the, the 12th instruction to the assembly around paying of workers. It says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. So you're an employer, you're hiring someone, you're going to pay them at the end, their fair wages of what you agreed upon at the end of the day, and that had to be. You could not say, I, you know, it's tight, you know, my, the people I'm doing work for, we're doing this, they didn't pay me yet, so I can't pay you yet. The you know, typical things you hear sometimes in the business, no, that can't happen. If you're going to hire someone, you better have the money to pay them, regardless if you're getting money from another source to do that job. You had to pay them at the end. If not, it was sin upon you because you were not treating them, why, uh, treating them right. The Lord hears the cry of the oppressed. Lord, this, this, this owner, this master, he's not paying me and I have no money. How am I going to do it? Well, we see in James 5, 4, warns the rich man who oppresses his workers. He says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud and cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. I mean, we're talking serious. God hears the cries of people being taken advantage of. Verse 16, we see the 13th um, instruction around the guilt within a family, dealing with guilt. It says, Fathers shall not put to death for their... Let me start at the beginning. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So we see here that God commanded that each individual be responsible for their lives. 
responsible for their own sin. What you commit, you cannot hold your father responsible and the father take because of the way he did or did not raise you properly. And that's why you're doing the sin because that sin that he does is now what I do. Yes, it impacted your life, guaranteed. That's why sin can go from generation upon generation because the generation learns from the previous generation and sin can continue. But you're still going to be held responsible for your sin, not because of what your mother and father did. Not with anybody else in, in your, involved in your... And if you were, Lord willing, you were not molested, you were not raped, you were not kidnapped, you were not... And you were now living in sin in your life, you cannot blame and ask for your sin to be pushed over into your fathers and others. No, no, you still have to deal with God one-on-one -on -one and you're held responsible for that. Because it's your sin, as, the, as God says here in the scripture. Verse 17, 18, we see the 14th um, instruction to the assembly. And it's dealing with alien or fatherless and the widow here and how to treat them. Look at what it says here. You shall not per pervert justice due the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you do, to do these things. So he's reminding, remember, remember where you came from and how you treat people who are foreign, aliens, how you treat the fathers, how you treat the widows who are, who are, are not being protected. The fatherless, they don't have a father to protect them. A widow doesn't have a husband to protect her. These are vulnerable people in these days and foreigners who are coming in and had nothing and nowhere to go. Be very careful how you treat them. You must treat them with compassion and fairness. That is what God says to them. You, that's how you, why? Because you used to be a foreigner. You used to have fatherless. You were, used to be widows. Understand where you came from and make sure you have compassion and fairness toward others. And we see in here, lastly, verses 19 through 22, we're talking about leaving behind some of the harvest for the poor. The, the foreigners, the fathers, the widows. Let's look at what it says right here. You, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the burrows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do these things. So we sit here, and again, we talked about it earlier. As is there farming... You're not sitting there going, make sure you get every single corner. Make sure, you know, if we miss a, a, a stretch around the outside, we're only going to cut on the inside. That is for those who are, are strangers. They're, they're foreign. They're just in the land here. They're passing through or they're lost or whatever. The widows, the kid, I mean, the, the fathers, they need to have a place to go. And it was a source of, 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 of not 
humiliating the people who are in a very difficult place. They're very poor. They don't have anyone to provide. And you don't want to humiliate them and say, come beg for your food. Come beg in, in, in front of me and, and do whatever I tell you to do and, and control people because they're in, they don't have the ability to protect themselves. They have no resources and no one to help them. That is not how you're to treat people. And so God says, you're not going to put people in those vulnerable places and treat them like you can treat them however you want because you have money and power and prestige and you've got all the farmlands and all the, all the abilities. You're going to leave it for them to have integrity, to come work for their food, gather it themselves, work and do what they need to so they have a, 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 um, a sense of pride of the fact that they were not begging for their food. They went in collected that food out of the generosity of those God has blessed with the abundance of their fields. That's how, that's the mindset. When God blesses you, you are to then understand that God doesn't say you get to just benefit from all yourself. There's a way to use that as God shows in the scriptures, how to tie the gifts and offerings so that you don't become selfish and you don't become greedy, and you don't become powerful and all these things because you've got all the power and wealth, is to give away so you're not, so you stay humbled and you're not becoming what God is warning the people not to do to these other people. So that's the scripture for tonight in uh, chapters 23 and 24.